everyone. Um, thank you for coming to this session. Um, so this is uh, going to be a panel discussion um, with our three um, expert panelists um, from the AM industry um, and going to be on the um, future, future of sustainability in additive manufacturing. Um, so I'll start by um, asking our panelists to introduce themselves and then we'll uh, move on to the questions. Um, we'll aim to keep the questions from me to probably 40, 45 minutes and then we'll go to the audience for um, if there are any questions that you have. Um, so this is kind of difficult to use. <laughs> <laughs> it's not ideal, is it? No. Um, okay, so Phil, would you like to start? Yep, sure, so I'm Phil Reeves. Um, last 30 years background in 3D printing, uh, PhD in developing stereolithography back in the 90s. Um, currently, I'm a director of a company called 4D Biomaterials, which is developing bioresorbable, implantable materials. But my big area of interest is how do we make a greener, more sustainable use of additive? Because I personally think there's an enormous amount of greenwashing telling the world that this is an incredibly sustainable technology when fundamentally it might not be. So hopefully we're going to have that slightly contentious discussion later. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Gerrit? Uh, yes, hello. Uh, my name is Gerrit Lucas. I'm from ACHEM, Aachen Center for Additive Manufacturing. Uh, my background is in uh, material science. I'm a casting engineer and I've been involved with additives since 2015 now. Uh, and since last year, I'm uh, leading the uh, ACHEM, our uh, spin-off uh, of the universities in Aachen. We are connecting about 100 researchers in additive manufacturing and I'm uh, leading the day-to-day -day operations basically and uh, my primary interest in additive is uh, polymers. So we're doing a lot of uh, things about extrusion technologies, um, a little bit of uh, resin uh, stereolithography um, and in, um, our primary targets in sustainability we're concerning about sustainability in applications as well as uh, through the process improvements. Thank you. Stephen? Good afternoon, uh, my name is Stephen Fitzpatrick and I work for the National Manufacturing Institute Scotland. I've been in manufacturing for around 23 years and the last nine years I've been involved in additive manufacturing. Um, I lead the additive manufacturing, the machining team at NMIS, but also a strategic programme around remake. And by remake what I mean is value retention and processes such as remanufacturing, repair and comprehensive refurbishment. Um, and you know, a big part of that strategic development at NMIS is around um, the use of additive manufacturing to extend the life cycle of products. Thank you. Um, and I, I guess I'll introduce myself as well. Uh, so my name is Hoda Amal and I'm a technology manager at the Manufacturing Technology Center. I have a background in AM for the last 10 years and uh, it's primarily been in polymers. Um, I now kind of cover our technology strategy in the uh, Manufacturing Technology Center um, for additive manufacturing technologies. Um, so I'll kick off the questions with um, a question for all of the panel uh, and I would like your all point of view um, from all of you um, on this question, please. Um, so the question is, how is AM uniquely equipped to address the challenges around sustainability? Uh, Phil, would you like to start? Is it? 
<laughs> is the question. I mean, that's a really, it's a, that's a huge question. And yeah. there are elements of it that are perceived to be, i.e. distributed manufacture, manufacture locally, certainly remanufacture, which we'll get onto, then there are, there are clear arguments. Yeah. Resource efficiency, maybe not. Energy efficiency, certainly not. Um, material efficiency on some processes, there's incredible resource and material efficiency. Other processes, they're not efficient at all. So I, I think we take this overarching viewpoint of additive that it's green and lean, but actually until you do a full life cycle assessment, you can't really say whether either a process or a product is environmentally beneficial by being made by additive. Okay, Garrett? Uh, yeah, Phil, you covered a lot. Um, maybe I can add something um, regarding applications because uh, I think a lot of things might be not that sustainable, but additive gives a new opportunity to create solutions, uh, new, new functions um, to create more uh, ecological sustainability, for example. Yeah. Stephen? Yeah, I mean, I agree with both. Um, you know, we do need to do more work around life cycle analysis. And, you know, until we're able to measure that, we can't prove if something is sustainable or not. Um, you know, I think we all talk about the design opportunity for additive manufacturing. Um, and when you look at manufacturing in general, around the 80% of the total scope three emissions are locked in at the design phase. So, you know, additive with that design opportunity does present that opportunity for us to be more sustainable. Um, but you're right, you know, we do need to measure that. And until we do, we can't prove that. But what about the argument that with additive, you can obviously optimize your design and then reduce the weight of the part. And then um, obviously, if it's going into in the into the use case, then you have you know less less energy use. Is that is that not true at all, it, it, or it, is it application dependent? It is true, but it's application based. And I, I did some studies years ago with, with Virgin Atlantic on on metal additive parts, and. What we realized was if we were making airframe components that would last for the, for the duration of the aircraft, which is 30 years, it would be sustainable. But actually cabin interiors are refitted every five to seven years. So a five to seven year life cycle on a metal additive lightweight part mm. doesn't offset the fuel gain. Right. So, so, you know, it's even, even in aerospace, you can say, well, lightweight aerospace must be good in terms of, of reduction of fuel. But it's not always the case. Because we all know in aerospace, you know, aircraft, you take them to bits once every month just to mm. check them out and critical parts get replaced. So it's, it's, not, it's not that cut and dry. So in that case, we actually do need to look into making additive more sustainable then. Um, how would you say companies are addressing that challenge in additive? You guys want to chip in on that? I've got lots of opinions. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know... I th I think everybody's trying to be more sustainable. You know, I think that the important thing to do is maybe focus on what aspect of sustainability you can achieve. I think it's very, very dangerous to say that you're a sustainable organisation. Um, you know, manufacturing in general is consumption, so somebody will always say that you're greenwashing in some respect or other. So I think it's important to focus on what aspect of sustainability you're going to look at and then promote that and work from there. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think if you if you look at the architecture, and again coming back to the, the, the hardware vendors, 
I don't know of any piece of hardware that was ever designed from the ground up to be sustainable. Mm -hmm. So if you look at, take selective laser sintering, you've got a, a, a body of very poorly conductive nylon powder that you're raising to just below its melt temperature, holding it there for 48 hours just so you can hit it with a laser beam to flip it over. Mm -hmm. And then you let it cool down for 48 hours. That's not sustainable. FDM, closed chamber FDM systems, you heat the entire volume of air inside this closed chamber so that you can have a controllability at one tiny point. Yeah. You know, you just think about the architecture. You could put baffles in that system and massively reduce the energy consumption, but it would increase the price point of the hardware. So it's, there's, there's no incentive for hardware vendors to design sustainable hardware. I guess the challenges came in, I mean, whatever you, you just uh, described, all of the things that you described as part of that um, architecture challenges, they were, those were put in because we were having problems with making the past, didn't we? Like we had distortion in the past if the whole bed was not heated. So now we're talking about sustainability and it just brings us another challenge of, okay, so we've kind of fixed that challenge of this part distortion, but what do we do about all the energy use now? Well, I mean, it's uh, it's a kind of information problem. Um, when the all the developers started to develop their machines, they kind of had this idea of a process that's functional. And now industry has slowly adopted a lot of those processes already. But now we're like kind of having uh, trouble to rethink our system designs, our material designs in terms of sustainability. Um, maybe one example, all the, most of the polymers we use in additive are the regular polymers used in injection molding and so on, but we could have done more in the recent years and we could do more today to increase the use of sustainable biodegradable materials mm -hmm. that are new on the market, that are in the early stages, and we could push more to those. Instead, we are sticking with the things we know. I think the material challenge is, is an important one. I mean, when you look across most industries, it's the raw material extraction stage and the primary processing stage, which locks in about between 60 and 80% of the scope three emissions. Yeah. So, you know, if we can, obviously we focus quite a lot in remanufacture about that life cycle extension, um, but also, you know, recycling is extremely important. So using these different materials. And I think that's where the big... Um, efficiency gains can be had if we look at mitigating that raw material extraction stage and that primary processing mm. stage. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, uh, my next question is actually to you, Stephen. Um, how is NMIS actually um, working to address the sustainability challenges? What, what things are you working on? Yeah, I mean, at NMIS we have a range of metallic and polymer processes, so, you know, I guess as near net shape processes we're saying that they are resource efficient and sustainable, however, you know, there's only some of these that we are addressing through life cycle analysis. Our big focus and our entry into additive nine years ago was around repair and remanufacture, um, and we've been using that as, as a means of um, repairing tooling, repairing parts for the renewable sector, um, but also quite a focus on the energy sector. So the, the life cycle analysis work that we've carried out on particular products um, have deemed a 99% um, emissions reduction versus new. Yeah. Um, and through the additive processes, 
um, or they wouldn't have been able to have been remanufactured by any other process other than you know, using the additive technologies that we mm -hmm. are using. Um, so I would say that that was an entry point into additive. Since yeah. then, we've then expanded that. We've got our forging and forming research centre. So we've expanded that to things like feature addition. Um, and again, when I go back to talk about the design opportunity, and again, where a lot of these emissions are locked in at that design phase, using feature addition to create a more flexible design. So feature addition onto forged and formed components, again, creates that opportunity for a more sustainable process. But what it also does in aerospace, for example, and some projects that we're working on with ATI, is it creates that flexible MRO opportunity as well, um, where in the past they've maybe been locked in because of high tooling costs for closed eye forging processes, for example, mm. which again have a higher energy cost associated with them. Um, so it's about, you know, for us a lot of it was around DED initially and using that as a means um, of addressing some of these life cycle, analysis, uh, life cycle extension challenges. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, you have experience of obviously working with more traditional um, processes and then now additive processes. Um, would you say, I mean, you, I don't, well, first of all, have you actually done life cycle analysis in the more traditional um, processes? And then how would you say they compare? Are they actually comparable? Are they not in terms of additive versus more conventional manufacturing processes? Yeah, so I mean, you know, as I mentioned, if we, if we take remanufacturing as, as an example, if 85% of the, the emissions are locked in at that initial phase, then we're mitigating that straight away. So by using the additive process, it's upwards of 85% emissions reduction. Generally, we reman because we're getting at least as good as the product that was initially used, and that's definition really of remanufacture. Then we're seeing about 98, 99% emissions reduction mm. when we're carrying out these processes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, Garrett, how would you say um, the work of the industries that are not prime users of AM? You would not think of them when you speak of AM. You would not think of them like straight away. Um, can affect the AM application for a more sustainable future. Um, I think those, uh, let's say, late followers, they're not late followers, mm. but they're kind of late on additive. Um, they are um, focusing more on, on um, applications that are existing and an improvement of those applications. Um, for example, we are working um, a little bit more in the hydrogen economy mm -hmm. uh, for, for different burnite geometries and so on. There has been uh, um, uh, an application in, in gas and oil industry before, but for hydrogen, it's a, bit, uh, a slightly different topic. And I think that's, um, it's cool to have uh, an emerging technology, an emerging industry um, engaging additively, uh, additive manufacturing right from the beginning. Um, improving their functionality of the parts rather than looking for cost. And yeah. um, this overall um, um, look on sustainability, not just ecological, but financially as well, social factors, governance factors, yeah. that's really great to see. And um, I think there are a lot of more different industries, smaller niches that are covering this, this aspect uh, of additive quite well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, say for example, building and construction industries going in that direction as well for climate solutions. Um, they are pretty great things. Yep. Yeah. 
Phil, have you had any experience of any of these industries? I'm sure you have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some, I guess, industries you wouldn't ex necessarily expect to use yeah, additive. Yeah. One that I think is really exciting is the process industry. Mm -hmm. So exploiting the design freedoms that additive gives us to make better process equipment, so heat exchangers. I've seen some amazing work on um, induction coils for induction heating. Mm. We're using copper 3D printing to make conformal induction coils. So the energy use for heating is less. Um, saw some petrochemical ap applications for heat exchangers where you're getting sort of a 5% gain in efficiency. And, and that manifests as thousands and thousands of pounds worth of electricity that you're not using. So I think those applications um, small business, really interesting. Well, there's a company called Hoyt um, in the, one of the Benelux countries who make sunglasses. And what they've done, they've completely challenged the business model of companies that sell glasses. So if you're a big glass manufacturer like Luxottica or any other brands, you go to a local retailer and you force them to buy this year's product. Yeah. And they sit on the stock. And if they don't sell the stock, mm. they just write it off. Now, what Hoyt have done is they've said, we're not going to do localized manufacture. We're going to do centralized manufacturer. But you keep one product and you sell that product. Mm. And while the lenses are being made, we will print that product and replenish it. So there's only ever a stock holding of one. Mm. And then at the end of the year, when they change the, the, the product line to a new, a new line, there's no waste. Now, the traditional, the traditional frame manufacturers, if you look at their business model, if they adopted that, they'd be bankrupt because their model is based on waste. Yeah. So I think challenging business models is, is, is another really exciting way of bringing in sustainability. Today's episode is sponsored by Nexa3D. Here, Michael Curry, Vice President and General Manager for Nexa3D's desktop business unit, discusses ultra-fast printing on the desktop with the zip, the benefits of open versus closed material systems, and creating sustainable 3D printers and consumables. So people, once they get a technology that is four to, to, to eight times faster, you see this really big behavior shift where people don't go back. You had people that were, would go to Blockbuster or other rental uh, locations and get videos. You know, they might wait, wait a week to get a video in stock. Then along came Netflix and kind of disrupted that with on-demand CDs. And then of course, Netflix then got disrupted by say iTunes from Apple. Uh, then Netflix disrupted again with the idea of, of true streaming. So you don't see people who are streaming now going back and asking for uh, a cheaper overnight download from iTunes. Like that's, that's not the market anymore. And so we're seeing the same thing for 3D printers. Once you experience a much faster speed, it makes it very difficult for you to want to go back to a slower speed. Uh, so as an example, we just uh, had a client who just received the zip and he did a side-by-side -side print on another very common SLA desktop printer in the market. Uh, the print that he traditionally would do took him five hours. The one he did on the zip took him 45 minutes. So that's a seven times improvement. And what that means for him is that, you know, he can now print by the hour each day, uh, whereas before he might do one print in the morning and then kick off an overnight print. So his productivity is going to be dramatically in increased. Or if you're trying to do a bit of a batch production of, of parts, 
you'll be able to get that many more batches done in a, in a given period of time. So I think that once people see that and f- experience that, it's going to be very difficult to go back to a, a, a slower process. Can you talk about the materials that Zip uses in regards to open versus closed material systems? So the Zip in itself is an open uh, platform for material development. We are really taking a close look at the various material providers in the marketplace, and we're curating and finding what we think are like really good materials. And then we will validate those and in some cases also uh, bring them into our platform and, and resell them. And we, you kind of get our stamp of approval that, hey, we think this is a really good resin. It's superior to its peers in terms of performance or some other aspect, maybe price, uh, value. And we'll make those next and branded. But then our systems are also open. So if you want to go ahead and, and find a resin that you prefer or a color that you need, we also have an open system where you can unlock all the same controls that our internal process team uses to develop resins. I understand that another way the the ZIP has been built is to really consider sustainability. How does the ZIP ecosystem address this? A lot of people complain in the desktop space around the amount of waste that's generated. I think mm. people in the industrial setting, maybe they, 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 they know that waste is a byproduct, but I think at the desktop, when you're using a printer as an individual, it maybe come, might come as a bit of a surprise. So the one thing that the two things we're doing in terms of our resin management, uh, we are using aluminum uh, bottles uh, that they themselves can be made from recycled material or they can also be recycled themselves after use. We also have the ability to refill them. And then the second one is in our vat system. So we have an interchangeable membrane and and a solid metal vat. So when your membrane uh, exceeds its life or maybe has a puncture or something like that, you can just simply unsnap the membrane and dispose of that and snap a new membrane in. And that that's a really big uh, improvement um, compared to some of the other systems where you're basically throwing away the entire vat. And that's a lot of uh, energy that you're throwing away in that process. Uh, so those are the two things around resin management. And then I guess lastly, the zip itself, uh, we chose to make it an all metal machine. Um, many desktop class machines are made out of plastic. So we're kind of making this sturdy, robust, rigid system. And then our goal in the future is to uh, make modular enhancements to that core. So you, you, don't, you don't end up throwing away your printer just because you want to upgrade its internal components. For more information, visit nexa3d.com. With all of that said, and we do mention life cycle analysis quite a lot, um, what, well, are there any parts and what parts of the cradle to grave um, kind of lifespan of, of an AM part do you think we are either neglecting or not paying enough attention to when, when we are doing um, kind of life cycle analysis when, and when it comes to sustainability? any of the panelists. I, I'm going to keep banging the same drum here. Um, so, <laughs> so I think that, you know, at that front end, we need probably need to be more transparent, you know. Um, what are, what is the energy consumption when we are extracting that material? And what is the energy consumption when we're doing our initial processing? And by that, I mean the melting, um, the rolling, 
the atomization processes, all of that front end stuff, that is where the big emissions lock in is. So I think they do need to be more transparent in that. But I think it's, you know, it is across the full life cycle that we need to we need to be more open and transparent. We need to work together. It needs to be a top-down and a bottom-up approach, I think. Um, and we need to bring in standards so that people can understand um, how to apply life cycle analysis mm. and education as well. You know, it's okay for me sitting in a, a manufacturing institute, um, you know, working on an R&D project on life cycle analysis, but people who are, you know, trying to make bits to make money yeah. um, don't have the time to do that. So we need to make it accessible for people as well um, mm. to be able to do this and, and to be more transparent, I think. Yeah, I think what would be useful, and, and I hate to I hate to kick vendors, but <laughs> what would be really useful is more information. If you if you try and do a simple life cycle analysis, the only information you can get on a machine is the bulk rated um, energy supply figure. Mm. This needs to be on a 10 amp circuit. This needs to be, and that's the basis of assumption, and that's the maximum load probably times three. What would be really useful is to know what's the energy consumption in its idle state, what's the energy consumption of this machine yeah. in a run state, what's it in a cooling state, possibly give us a couple of different material variants and say, okay, in these states, you know, and, and you're right, that needs to be done through standards. There needs to be a standard ASTM or ISO mm -hmm. way of, of defining the energy consumption of additive machines. In an ideal world, I would love to see a kind of a, a red to green, almost like we do on domestic appliances, that says this is A-rated per kilogram of material, yeah. or this is E-rated, run away from it if you care about sustainability. But I think there's, there's too many variables to mm. ever get to that point. Yeah, especially that energy use at, at idle stage is a, is a very interesting one because we recently went through a whole exercise throughout all of them TC workshop to see what, because a lot of machines say they don't, they can't be turned off, they have to just be left at idle. And there was just so much energy that they were using at just being left at idle. And if you turn them off, they have, you just have to leave them on for so long to, you know, just get back to the stage that they're able to process the material. Garrett, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I, w I wanted to add uh, something aside of the processes because I think um, we mentioned before the topic remanufacturing. I think um, the more AM applications we see and the more complex the parts get, the more uh, the bigger the problem with repairing and remanufacturing of those parts will be. And if I see today, um, let's say in metal, there are ways to... Uh, to um, divide a, a metal alloy into its uh, elements. But if you see that for, for polymers, that's a whole different story. And I think um, that's one thing to consider. It's really hard to repair the complex geometries we create with additive manufacturing at the end if they eventually break. And um, this is a new aspect we should always yeah. uh, keep in mind as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so, I mean, I'm I'm... Assuming that because we are a young industry, we're in a better place to address the sustainability challenges and make the changes that you're suggesting, right? Does that does that make a difference into into where we are in our sustainability journey for IM in terms of industry? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a young industry. Uh, we can learn from the mistakes from older industries, casting or milling, drilling, whatever. 
Yeah. Uh, so a lot of opportunities, but um, I think we're currently still on the track. Let, let's keep it conventional and do, do the same things that all the industries have done. Um, so it, it's especially for the younger uh, researchers and people entering the industry to, mm. to drive change, I'd say. I think we can also use digitalization to support that as well. Yeah. With it being a, a younger organization um, with a lot of kind of young talent coming through, um, it's a different demographic to, you know, perhaps machining or casting or forging. Um, so I think we can use digitalization as an enabler to support this sustainability journey as well. I think that's a key enabler, actually, mm -hmm. to support the sustainability journey. Both for things like life cycle analysis and getting data off machines, but also for analyzing the machines and understanding how they're performing and then being able to, you know, have a feedback where we can improve that performance. That's a very good point, yeah. Yeah, I mean... We I guess it's, a, it's not a young industry, it's a 30-year-old industry, oh, yeah. but the transition from prototyping mm -hmm. to product and yes. device manufacture is new. And I think that's where the opportunity space is because there are certain end-use sectors, the packaging industry for one, the automotive industry for another, where legislation is driving the materials that they have to use, not just want to use, mm. but sustainably they have to look at their materials in terms of whether it's biosourced, whether it's... Yeah. truly compostable or degradable and, and if we have materials that actually meet those challenges yeah. that actually might be the thing that really drives 3d printing forward mm. and we can almost leapfrog the idea of trying to push old materials into these applications when those industries are being told to change the material palette yeah so maybe that's actually the opportunity for the future so let's 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 hurdle to actually sustainable materials yeah for yeah for everything so, yeah exactly yeah i agree um, so, as AM users, well, I actually have two questions. One is, what should like what what are the easiest steps that AM users can take, uh, which are like easy wins for their journey in sustainability? The first steps that they can take. I have another one for for the AM industry. Yeah, this, but that, let's this stick is to users this is the now. contentious one. Prototype less. <laughs> Do it digitally more, and if you do have to do it, be really productive in the utilization of your machines. You know, I, over the last 10 years, we've gone from people sending things to service bureaus, where the service bureaus are printing 400 parts overnight efficiently and shipping them out the next day, mm. to people printing parts on their desks, going home, coming back in the morning and going, well, actually, that isn't the design I wanted anyway. So in the bin it goes, and then the next one gets printed, and the next one, and, and it all sounds great but sustainably it's not. Yeah. So maybe just think more about what you're printing because th th there is an impact of all of this printing. That's mm -hmm. a bit tree-huggish, but that, that's, <laughs> that's an easy way no, to... No, it's a, it's to, a very to, easy to, to win, isn't it? it? Yeah. yeah, that's true. It kind, of, it kind of negates one of the... It does. It, yeah. yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. But, but you still need to think, right? Stephen, were you going to add anything to it? Yeah, I mean, just going back to an earlier point, you know, for, for organisations, I think it's maybe just finding that thing that they can do that is sustainable and you know focusing on that and, and promoting that um you know don't just say you know we're a sustainable business because there's one aspect that you have made sustainable within your business um and that, because that's when you end up with greenwashing challenges which we've seen across you know multiple industries not just am so you know for startup businesses or smaller businesses or even the bigger ones what is the thing that you're going to do that is going to be sustainable even if it's a small thing mm -hmm. and and you know, talk about that um, 
be specific about it. Yeah. Don't just generalise around sustainability because that's where you'll get caught out, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think um, users should set definite targets for their use of additive. Mm-hmm. Um, if they do that, they kind of prevent this, uh, like, think before your print or don't think before your print mm-hmm. um, issue. And um, if you have those targets, they could be financially. That obviously is sometimes a good guess because um, sometimes waste just costs money. Um, but there could be some other targets as well on, on the social level or on a, an ecological level. And if they are quite clear and transparent, everyone can uh, really decide whether now it's the time for additive and prototyping, now it's the time for additive and, and uh, serious manufacturing. Yeah. I mean, one thing I would probably add to that is educate yourselves on what you are doing. So create less waste, right? create less support, um, <laughs> you know, so, so it's all material that just, just goes to waste or have to get recycled, so, so it's all CO2 carbon print, isn't it? Mm. There, there is also a quality aspect, and, and just on that point, yeah. you know, if you, if you look at the way you orientate parts when you build them, you, you orientate for speed, you orientate for minimizing support structure, you might orientate for surface quality, you could also think orientate for energy. And what's the quickest way to get it off the machine? And the other, the other one, if anyone's old enough to remember when Evonik had a fire and there was no nylon powder and everyone had to kind of work out, well, how am I going to keep my facility running? People started increasing the refresh rate of powder mm. and putting more pre-used powder. And the quality wasn't as good, but people went, well, it's acceptable. It's yeah. okay. Yeah. For what I need, it's okay. And, and we've maybe... In some cases, we've gone too far. We're making too good a quality parts, and maybe we can dial the quality down. Yeah, we don't all need to have airspace grade. Yeah, exactly. So, so maybe that's a different way of thinking. Yeah, yeah, that's that's thicker layers, not thinner. Yeah, that's a very good point, actually. Yeah, maybe maybe use use your material based on what you're actually going to based on application. Maybe use more recycled material, right? Yeah, and then. how about the AM sector? Um, how can the AM sector, as machine manufacturers, material providers, what can they do to bolster the sustainability of AM? Yeah, maybe uh, I start with that one. Um, Phil already mentioned that uh, it's coming down to uh, business models um, and how we think about additive manufacturing systems, about the materials. And um, there's an opportunity to move away from this uh, linear selling one-off product uh, and to, uh, for, for uh, machine manufacturers into a more um, sub- subscription-based approach. So companies are rather um, paying for a service that's not really new, but I think it's something that is uh, kind of neglected by the AM industry that companies, um, also customers of the AM industry, actually pay per use for parts, for, for the machine, for the machine uptime, um, for efficiency on the machine. Um, and this might be a good solution to, to move away from this. I, I buy a machine, I have to use it, and if I don't use it, it's just costing money. And if, I'd say, everyone has in the organization some controllers, if they see a machine not running, uh, they either want to get rid of it, so the engineering or prototyping department will start using it more, and that's yeah. often not that sustainable way. 
So I would suggest rather um, uh, machine manufacturers having opportunities for, for their customers to just uh, jump into this subscription-based uh, things as well. That's a very good point. Anything to add to that, Stephen or Phil? No, I mean, I, th I think we've, we've kind of spoken about vendors and machine manufacturers, you know, across this discussion. So yeah. I think probably nothing else to add to this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess the only the only thing to add, and, and, you know, we could get into a long protracted debate about distributed manufacturer and making things locally and how sustainable it is. Yeah. You still have to get raw material to the place where you want manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And the amount of packaging waste and inefficiency in the supply of raw material mm. and the lack of back channels to send back cartridges, spools. Um, a lot of that is about protectionism. It's about yeah. maintaining lockdown systems and lockdown material supply. Mm. So again, maybe thinking differently about the business model and saying, well, I don't care if you use somebody else's material, if you're paying per hour for use, yeah. then we still get revenue. So I think, think differently about the the way we, we supply material into the supply chain, as well yeah. as what that material is. You know, the more biosourced it is, the more ethical it is. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point as well. Um, and I think the last question that maybe we have touched on a bit um, during the conversation as well, um, what can the governing bodies do to kind of help with this journey? And it won't be all just AM, obviously. It's with everything, but is there any specific um, targets which we already have, but um, can, that can be set, or things that have been set that you think would would actually really help with this journey? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of new green strategies, net zero strategies coming out just now mm -hmm. from government. In fact, there's probably about five or six over the last couple of years that have came out. Um, you know, and additives got a huge part to play in that, I, I believe. So I think, you know, ultimately, you know, Phil had mentioned there that, you know, the industries themselves, you know, whether it be the automotive or the aerospace sector, if they are, if they are driving that change and they're putting restrictions and legislation in, which prevents, you know, people from using certain materials or going over a, above a certain energy limit, then that will drive that down through the supply chain. Mm. Um, I do. I do feel that government need to. You know, they need to incentivise that. They they are putting. You know, more money through Innovate UK has been. You know, focused on research development now than there, is, there has ever been. Um, yeah. But is it enough? Um, it's very competitive landscape, so not everybody can get access to that funding. Um, and I do believe that Innovate need to perhaps change the way that they. You know, you do the the, the funding calls. Mm. I believe they maybe need to open that up to more. Um, a wider audience of the most maybe supply chain based projects where more companies can tap into it and actually get the benefit from it and make mm. better use of that money um, but I think there does need to be that intervention so that um, you know businesses can actually you know take things on board and, and have the, the focus to, to be more sustainable yeah, yeah and, and maybe on, on that make sustainability a, 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 a dare I say, a higher weighted metric in some of these grant mm. processes rather than just job creation and wealth creation. Because they will come, they will follow through sustainability, but making making sustainability the focus, not yeah. for the sake of it, but making it higher weighted in the way that you, you assess those grant applications. Well, that not... Um 
force people to kind of greenwash, though? Because there's would, a fine line, isn't Yeah, there? hopefully it would force them to actually <laughs> innovate more sustainable products that you can't build a business case to, yeah. to develop using the capital markets. Mm. You know, you, you've, got to, you've got to have a really, really credible business case to get a VC to invest in something. Yeah. And, and certainly some of these... The sort of the bio-based initiatives in additive are much longer term than VCs are going to want to fund. Um, another thing would be education. You mentioned that before, mm. and I think um, we're talking about um, funding as well. Um, you could tell by my accent probably that I'm from Germany, <laughs> um, and we do have those like supply wider supply chain funding schemes, especially. Um, where additive manufacturing is um, is welcome to to be funded. Um, however, we are still struggling at the universities of proper study programs about additive, mm. and we're struggling even more on having proper programs about sustainability. And if you put those on the, uh, like side to side, yeah. you kind of uh, have a lack of uh, decent education in this field. So this might mm. be something to be pushed a little bit harder besides obviously the topics in, in um, uh, creating um, solid guidelines for yeah. companies to, uh, to be more sustainable. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, if, if there is industries are putting restrictions on people carrying out activities with certain materials or with a certain energy efficiency, then that will disrupt things and it will, you know, lead to more innovation and people to think about how to improve yeah. what they're doing. If it's all about cost, and it still is all about cost, yeah. then that innovation won't be there and we won't achieve that net zero target that we're all looking to do. So, yeah, I think it's really important for that intervention to happen. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, that's the end of my questions, but uh, was there any burning issues that you think I haven't addressed that you would like to say to the audience or...? Or we can open to the audience to ask their questions. <laughs> right. Um, so, does anyone from the audience have any questions for the panel? Thank you. So, about metal 3D printing, we know that, well, there's a lot of heat and a lot of energy consumption. So, which technology do you see that can be like the most efficient in terms of energy distribution, uh, either direct energy, powder systems, or what is your experience about energy consumption? I, okay, and again, and, and this is where the lack of good LCA data is a problem. Um, I would like to think now it's probably indirect inkjet binder into powder with a secondary MIM process with a secondary furnace process because those furnaces are very efficient and you can massively pack them with parts so the 3d printing element is actually quite a low energy consumption because binder jet into metal powder is not a lot of energy certainly not compared to something like wham or ebm or or, or, or powder bed so i think i think that's that, that's that's the interesting one is do you go direct or indirect and I, I, I'd have a gut feeling indirect per kilo of material. And again, it depends what the material is, but it's probably more efficient. Yeah, I guess, it, I guess it's very application specific, isn't it? You know, if, if we're trying to build a part that's a meter high, you know, you're restricted on what technology you can use anyway. Um, so it's all about then how you make that process more energy efficient. Um, you know, I take Phil's point, you know, 
binder jet technologies is probably one for the smaller parts that maybe is you know just now more efficient than others but i think it is you know very application specific and that brings back the lca question you know that is also very application specific and material specific um, and it does need to be you know treated as that uh, specificity if you like um, so it, it's probably not an easy question to answer directly, but it's very, you know, it's very open depending on the application, I think. I think, I mean, it's certainly true that a net-shaped process is going to be far more efficient than a near-net process. Because with a near-net process, you've got the inefficiency of the process, then the waste, and then the post-processing, whether that's CNC machining, polishing, whatever. And you're, you're machining away very inefficient material that you've added. So, so I think that's, you know, that's part of the whole consideration. So that the nearer net you can be, the better. Thank you. Um, anyone else? And, and what about like post-processing parts, like heaping or like furnaces? Do you see like there, there can be improvements also on that part of the equation? Uh, or how can we reduce the, the energy consumption? Obviously, it's based by case by case as well, but do you think that there can come new solutions to the market that can be more efficiency for post-processing the parts, or actually we can use like the current technology that we have already in place to reduce the consumption of energy? I think those uh, post-processing methods have been uh, around quite a while, so they are on, on track on that. Um, but I want to um, add on something Phil said before. It's when you optimize your part in, in, in your um, uh, during slicing, so which orientation you're going to use. It's, it could be energy in the process, but it could also be um, post-processing. So reducing steps uh, in post-processing would be something really beneficial uh, for that. So uh, when it comes to hip, that's maybe not something you, you would uh, scratch, but uh, less, uh, less uh, milling or something um, would, be, uh, would be a good thing. I think it's also about understanding the requirements of the part as well. You know, some parts will definitely need tipped and, and others may not. You know, that's quite an energy intensive process. So, you know, understand the requirements and then based on that, choose your post-processing techniques. And, you know, don't just necessarily do it because you want zero porosity or 0.001 porosity in your part. Um, if you need to do it, then yeah, you know, you might just need to go down that route. But if you don't, then, you know, don't just do it for the sake of getting, you know, excellent properties that you might not require. Thank you. Oh, there's, there's one at the back. Thanks, Sada. Um, just a closing one, I guess. Do you have any good references or resources for carbon accounting on additive processes? Um, Granter have some data. Um, so in the Granter material selector, there is, there is data in there on processes. Uh, but there's only data on primary material production. Um, I'll be honest, there's very, very little. I mean, we, we did a study on it years ago, but it was industry funded, so they, yeah, they just didn't want it out there. And we, interested, we developed some software, some LCA software, 10 years ago to do this, but there was no, there was no take up, so, because um, we couldn't you know, see the benefit in it. But I, I wish I could answer the question. There's, there are a lot of academic studies, but they tend to be on individual processes, and, and you can't sort of use them back to back because they've done it in a different way or they've used, one's used volume as their measure, the other one's used mass. You know, one's comparing titanium with steel. Well, you can't, because they're, they're not comparable. So 
So I wish I had a good answer, but the, the grant material selector software, that does have some data. Yeah, we're using the Granta selector as well, um, and I've got a paper that's just been published in the Journal of Remanufacturing, which I'll send you on if you want, around carbon emissions study that we've carried out on the use of additive for remanufacturing compared to, to a new product, so I'll send that on. Okay, thank you. Um, any more? No? Okay, great. Thank you very much to all of our panellists, and thank you for listening. Um, if you have any more questions, I mean... They'll, they'll be around so you can see them in the show. <laughs> Thank you.